to King Saul, uh, the throne of mercy and grace accessible to us and the price that it costs becomes very precious indeed. 1 Samuel 28, uh, I don't know about you, one of the things I love about what these joint services allow us to do is that, so we have here, it looks like from what you mentioned earlier, we have three congregations uh, come together to worship. All of us were separate in our own congregations this morning, hearing from God's Word in particular places, faithfully exposited. Uh, But now we get to come together and all join in and look at one particular story in a different context, a different place together. And we get to be taught from God's Word and we get to to experience the blessing of that uh, as as a larger body. Um, I love stories. I suspect I'm not alone in that. I, I, uh, I love to read those sorts of epic stories that have been around for a long time. They've, they've, uh, they've passed the test of time. I love good movies that tell those sorts of epics. I think that's something that is built into us uh, as humans. And uh, what we have tonight before us in 1 Samuel 28 is an incredible story. find the right way to arrange these here. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, what I'd like us to do is try to experience this account in a single sitting. And so we're going to study and uh, just sort of sit under the story of the entire chapter of, uh, of 1 Samuel 28 tonight. So instead of standing together and reading, uh, I thought that may be a bit burdensome for some to read something this extended. What we're going to do is break it into three sections, and I'll read that section before we look at it and think through it together. All right? So if you would, let's pray one more time before we begin in his word. Heavenly Father, we, we are a people who, who understand the need that we have for you. We are utterly dependent on you in all things. And especially as we sit now before your word. We, we desire to come to it humbly. We desire to come to it as a people who are hungry for your word, a people who recognize that it's food for us, that we don't live by bread alone. We live by your words that come to us and transform us, and we want that to be the case this evening. That cannot happen without the moving of your Holy Spirit, and so we ask, Lord, that you would, you would open our ears and our hearts, that you would, I ask that you would guard me as I speak. And we ask these things with confidence, Lord, because we know that you are for us. You love us. You have called us to yourself, and it's your intention to conform us to the image of your Son by the means of the ministry of your word. And so we ask you to do that tonight, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's so incredible about the story we're about to experience together is that it is a story that plays on one of our greatest fears. Uh, the notion that I would find myself in a time of terror and need and would cry out and find no help is a terrifying thing to imagine. No response except for silence. This is what we're going to see King Saul experience tonight. Let me preview for you. There are a couple of themes that we're going to see in this chapter. Uh, One of them is that silence that he experiences. And it's through the lens of that silence that we're going to break up the the passage tonight. Um, So these are the three sections that we're going to work through. In verses 3 through 7, we're going to see the source of Saul's silence, the source of the silence that Saul is about to experience. You'll notice there are a lot of S's in these uh, outline points. 
verses 7 through 14, we're going to see Saul's solution to the silence. And then in verses 15 through 25, we will hear Samuel's explanation for the silence. That last one has that pesky E in it. If that annoys any of you, I thought you could say Samuel's splaining of the silence. And then they're all S's. You can set that aside and it won't be a distraction to you. All right. So let's begin a reading verses 3 through 7 and see the first part of this story. Uh, this may well be for some of you the first time you've heard this account tonight. I have no idea. Um, whether it is or not, I feel confident we will leave all jointly recognizing the power of what we see here. Verses 3 through 7, let's start here, seeing the source of the silence. God's word says this, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. And we'll stop there for a moment. Now, this story begins like all good stories do. It is setting up the, the setting of what's about to take place. So you can see we've jumped into uh, this particular place in Israel's history. They've been brought as a people out of the land of Egypt, brought through the wilderness, led by Joshua in and conquered the land. It's been distributed, and uh, they have demanded a king after their own hearts, and God has provided them this man, King Saul. And we come to him now at the end uh, of his life. If you were to peek to the next chapter, you would see that he dies in the very next chapter. So we're coming to him at the end. Uh, here's some of the setting that we get and in this particular section. Verse 3 tells us that Samuel is dead, the prophet Samuel. This has already taken place. This was mentioned back in chapter 25, but the author brings it back up here because it's important for the story. The problem here is that Saul can't inquire of Samuel because Samuel has died. There's a very interesting statement made back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. It said there, if you want to look at verse 13, just to peek over, 1 Samuel 7.13 tells us that the Philistines were subdued under Samuel's leadership. And then it says this. It says, The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And now Samuel has died. Samuel's death tells us something. The barrier that Samuel seems to have represented uh, between uh, Israel and the Philistines has been removed, and there is now going to be renewed Philistine aggression. Verse 3 continues with setting, telling us that the mediums and the spiritists have been removed from the land. This, again, helps to explain Saul's problem, as he needs to find a medium to try to inquire of, since he can't inquire through Samuel, and he can't find one. This also harkens us back to more faithful times. You may remember who it was exactly that removed the mediums and spiritists from the land. Well, it was, it was Saul who removed them from the land. What we're going to see tonight in Saul is a dark, rebellious, 
stubborn, and terrified man. But it has not always been this way. He was faithful to the Lord once. Verse 4 continues, telling us that the Philistines are about to mount and are mounting a complete invasion. Chapter, nine, chapter 29, verse 1, will tell us that they assemble in Aphek. But here in our passage in verse 4, it, it tells us that they are marching to Shunem, which is in the valley of Jezreel. Now, if we had a map up and we could trace this, you would see that what they're doing is very effective. They are cutting Israel in half as they march across like this. This is a very uh, significant military engagement that they're undertaking against Israel. Deep inside of Israelite territory. And this is why Saul gathers his forces at Mount Gilboa in verse 4. He has to defend this spot. And from there, he's able to look out and watch and see the invading sources in verse the invading forces. And verse 5 tell us that, tells us that when Saul saw them, when he saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Now this is the first instance of something that's going to happen at several points through this chapter. The author engages in some wordplay here. Uh, the, the, the two words in particular, he will play off of each other. The, the verb that's used to see when Saul saw that the verb there, see, is very close in form to the Hebrew word for fear. And in fact, depending on the verb form, they, it, what form it takes, it can be the exact same word as the word, the noun, fear. Right? And so as the author is writing, he plays those two words off of each other. These ideas of sight and fear go back and forth. Seemingly what we will find is that everything that is seen in this chapter is going to strike fear into hearts. And while we're thinking about our senses, it is noteworthy to think about these two major themes that we have seen. Do you notice that they both have to do with our senses? We mentioned that silence is a continuous theme that we're going to see throughout this chapter. And the other is this idea of sight and fear. I don't think this is an accident. In a passage where God's voice is silent, that the sights that are seen bring nothing but terror. Imagine what it would be for us to try to live our lives without having any explanation from God as to what's going on and why. Trying to interpret the events of your life this last week without knowledge of who God is that is driving these things, uh, the assurance that he has our good in mind, the assurance that he is the one with a mighty right hand who holds us at every moment. Without knowledge from God, everything we see produces nothing but terror. We don't know how to navigate the rough waters. We don't know how to rightly assess the situations that we are in. We cannot know these things without insight from the Lord. And as the scene develops, this hopelessness is going to be made clear. We're going to watch Saul in a progression in this way. Verse 5 tells us that he is afraid. Verse 15 will tell us that he will be greatly distressed. In verse 20, he will be filled with fear. And in verse 21, he will be terrified. Saul needs guidance. And he needs it desperately. But when he calls out to the Lord, he receives none. Verse 6, look with me there. He inquired, but the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. He desires now a word from the Lord. He no doubt prayed to God asking, for this word, but to no avail. He receives no dreams. He has no insight to get from the Urim, which 
is something that the priests would have engaged in to discern the will of the Lord. And it's going to be very hard for him to get that at this point after he murdered all of them back in chapter 22. All but one who fled to King David. There are no prophets sent to bring any aid at this point to Saul. We can hear a little bit of irony there because back in chapter 10 of this book, Saul was counted among the prophets. And now he's at a place in life. He's walked himself to a place where he seeks out word from a prophet and none are sent to him. So this is the setup that we have of this silence that Saul is being tortured with in this chapter. As we come into verse 7, verses 7 through 14, we are going to see Saul's solution to the silence. We find very quickly uh, that he has another plan in mind. If he can't, in verse 7, if he can't receive a word from the Lord, from Yahweh, well, then he'll look for advice elsewhere. It says, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. You see, Saul now has to get around a problem that was created by a more faithful past self because it's so difficult now to find these mediums. And what he does then is he disguises himself. He goes by night to Endor. Again, if we had a map, you'd see how desperate he is because he has to pass right by the encampment of the Philistines to get to this place. Hopeless. And when he gets there, he utters the name of Yahweh for the last time in, uh, in the written record. I wonder what's the context in which he speaks the holy name of God for the final time. Well, verse 10, Saul, Saul vowed by, to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And let's take just a moment. I meant for us to read this passage before we went through it. So let's, let's go back. I'm going to read verse 7 through 14 in its entirety. Rereading verse 7 here. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. So this is what's happening here as Saul is seeking to resolve this problem of silence. Coming back to our walkthrough here, when, when he has promised her by the name of Yahweh, this is enough to convince her of his good intention and of her security. 
And so she does what she does. She begins to engage in these, in these efforts to commune with this realm. Verse 12 says, when the woman saw Samuel, and it begins to express her shock and her surprise. Something very surprising is happening to her here. A real spirit is actually appearing, and she is terrified. It says that she cried out with a loud voice. Now, this could mean a couple of things. It may mean that she's accustomed to making this up. It may mean that she's not accustomed to making things up, but that she is used to communing with the demonic realm and that there's something else very different happening here as Samuel comes to speak to Saul. At the very least, we can tell things are going very differently than they do for her on most occasions. It's interesting to notice that Saul seems to not be able to see this spirit himself. Verse 13, he asks her, what do you see? And she says, I see one like a God coming out of the earth. Verse 14, what is his form? He can't see this, this spirit. And she says, it's an old man and he is wrapped with a robe. And as soon as she says he's wrapped with a robe, Saul knows that this is Samuel. Because Saul knows that robe very well. The last time that he was with Samuel, Samuel was pronouncing God's judgment and walking away. And Saul grabbed the robe in desperation, trying to plead with him, and tore the robe. And that's when Samuel turned and said, just as this robe has torn, so the Lord is going to tear away God's kingdom from you. He knows this robe very well. He communicates with this spirit of Samuel, probably through the medium then. And the, the word that he receives from Samuel is, Anything but what he was hoping to experience. Because Samuel now is going to explain the silence that has been tormenting Saul. Coming to verse 15, this is what we see. Let me read verses 15 through 25. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and has become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had, fattened, had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it 
And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. He is now confronted with the spirit of Samuel here. This is a bit of a, of a uh, can be a bit of a debate. Is this really Samuel or is this actually a demon that is coming uh, to, to torment and to deceive? Uh, I, I lean toward the, the interpretation that this is indeed Samuel. And there's three quick reasons I can give you why I think that. Number one, the medium was surprised. So if she's accustomed to dealing in the demonic, this is not what she's accustomed to. Uh, second, the, me- the message that Samuel is going to bring is true. It's from God. This is not a deception that, this, uh, that, that is represented in this message. And then third reason, and maybe the most simple of them, that the, the biblical text itself tells us that this was Samuel. Verse 12, verse 15, verse 16, it says that it was Samuel. And so I'm going to agree that it's Samuel. There's no reason to think otherwise. It wouldn't be difficult for God to do this thing. And it wouldn't be problematic to us theologically. So Saul announces the problem to this spirit of Samuel that has been sent, explaining why he's disturbing Samuel here. Verse 15, God is no longer answering me. And do you notice the means he tells Samuel he has attempted? God's no longer answering me, he says, either by prophets or dreams. Interesting to me that he leaves out the priestly Urim that was mentioned back in verse 6. You know, the priests that he had murdered. He doesn't mention those to Samuel. Could it be that even now he's still trying to make excuses for himself? Saul's true problem, though, is pointed out very quickly by Samuel, and that's that Saul is operating out of a terribly confused position as he's trying to come conjure up Samuel to receive a word of instruction. Because the only way Samuel had ever helped Saul was as a mouthpiece of God. And Samuel points this out immediately in verse 16. Why are you asking me? Why do you ask me? Since the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy. I was never helping you in a way removed from the pleasure and will of this God that is opposing you and that is silent to you now? Why would you think that you could gain any insight or wisdom from me now? Did you think I was providing wisdom to you from my humanity? It's not just a confused situation, though. This is a very, this is a deeply tragic thing to be seeing Saul going through because we remember the times that Saul had access, regular access, to Samuel's inspired word while he was alive. God had sent Samuel to him to guide and bless and protect him, and he had ignored his counsel. And now in his moment of greatest need, he is seeking that out only to find that it is eluding him. Charles Spurgeon wrote about a man in a similar fashion, who had sent for him when he was on his deathbed and sent for Spurgeon to come to him. And apparently that man, while he was living, had often jeered at Spurgeon and mocked him and called him a hypocrite. And now he's on his deathbed, and in desperation he's calling for him. And this is what Spurgeon wrote of him. He had, when in health, wickedly refused Christ. Yet in his death agony he had superstitiously sent for me. Too late he sighed for the ministry of reconciliation and sought to enter at the closed door. 
but he was not able. There was no space left for him then for repentance, for he had wasted the opportunities which God had long granted to him. Can you imagine a a more desperate and tragic place than that? What could be worse than to be in your hour of greatest need and to find yourself outside of the voice of the one who can rescue you? There is no more room for Saul's repentance. There is no more time. That offer is off the table. Verse 19, Samuel says, Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Speaking of Hades, speaking of death, not of heaven and hell, he's saying, you and your sons, your lives come to an end tomorrow. There are no more chances granted to you. Hebrews 9.27 tells us it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, before we continue on in the story, there are a couple of observations that I think we need to draw here and reflect on. The first of these is, I think, the most evident, that there is nothing more hopeless than what we're seeing here in Saul. The most hopeless misery in all of life is to find oneself abandoned by God. And we're going to talk about that a few times here before we're finished, but I want us to always remember the flip side as well. There is nothing more hopeless than to be abandoned by God. But the flip side is that when that is not the case, when I've not been abandoned by God, there is always hope. Always. Saul feels the hopelessness of his situation here. And he confirms this sense of, of, uh, you can almost sense the, the last glimmers of hope seep out of him as he hears this word from Samuel. And it leaves him in verse 20, totally prostrate and unable to get up and refusing to eat. And I think his refusal to eat makes perfect sense. Maybe the first sensible thing he has done this entire night. Because eating implies hope, doesn't it? You know what I mean? I, I can only expect that he, when he's offered this food, there must have been the question in his mind, what is the point of eating? What's the point of gaining strength? I know now what I am walking to, and it is nothing but doom. What's the point of this food? As a New Covenant believer, one who has trusted in the finished work of Christ and knows myself to be safe in his arms, it still is painful to watch this happen in front of me as I'm reading. But I do work, as we mentioned, I work to, to, to remind myself of the opposite truth. When it is not the case that I've been abandoned by God, there is always hope. But I I see the hopelessness in Samuel, the king of Israel. He's taken off his royal robes to come on this trip, but he'll get back and he'll be able to put them back on, live in splendor and comfort. And yet I have never been as hopeless. I will never be as hopeless as he is that night. I wonder if we can sometimes fail to notice what a blessed position it is that we occupy as sons and daughters of God. We go through many trials and difficulties that are brought to us by the Lord, but guess what? We get to live every moment of life in the knowledge that God is not against us. I wonder if you've thought lately about what, a, what an unspeakably blessed position that is that you occupy as a child of God. And for us, it's in fact so much more than that, isn't it? He's not just not against us. The God Almighty is for us. He is working for our good. 
He is using our lives for his glory. You will never be useless to him. No matter what you struggle with in terms of disappointment or senses of failure, how things have turned out, what ministries you're in, and when you're in times of little fruit, he is using you. He has never declared one of his children to be useless to him and thrown them aside. Are you living in light of that hope and that joy? So this is the first observation we need, to just, we need to have in mind as we're hearing this story, that there is nothing more hopeless than being abandoned by God. And when we haven't been abandoned by God, there is always hope. The second observation is this, that a child of God never stops crying out to him. There's, there's a really sharp contrast uh, with this passage. If you'll look for just a moment at 1 Chronicles chapter 10 and find verse 13. And what's happening there is that this story is being raised to make a point. First Chronicles 10, 13. Listen to this diagnosis, this analysis of Saul in this situation. He writes there, So Saul died for his trespass which he committed against the Lord because of the word of the Lord which he did not keep. And also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom of David, turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. Now wait a minute, he did inquire of the Lord. Right? That's, how, that's what started this. He inquired, the Lord didn't answer him, so he sought out another measure. But here it's telling us that part of the, the culpability of Saul is that he sought out an, uh, the counsel of a medium instead of inquiring of the Lord. See, we hear that, and I think we get insight into part of Saul's problem all along here. He sinks out the Lord in our passage. He is not answered, and he quickly despairs of that option and seeks out another option. And see, there's the distinction right there. Because the child of God understands that there is nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else to go. The distinction is not that a child of God does not ever experience times where the Lord seems silent or absent. We do. But the child of God knows there is nowhere else. You think of the words of the disciples, right? Peter, Lord, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. The child of God never stops seeking the Lord. Now let's compare what Saul is doing here with what David writes in Psalm chapter 22. I'm going to read a few selections from this chapter. Psalm 22, we get the sense pretty quickly that David is in a place experientially very close to what Saul is experiencing here. Psalm 22 verse 1, David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Does that sound familiar? 1 Samuel 28. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Verse 19, 
But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And we could go on. And we can hear in David, if the Lord does not answer him and rescue him, he will perish crying out to the Lord. There is no plan B in David's mind. If he prays for another day or two and no help comes and no word comes, he has another option in his back pocket. He has no other option. Saul inquired of the Lord, received no answer, and went out into the night, seeking out a medium. Do you notice, by the way, the words of verse 1? Does that sound familiar to you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words that our Lord uttered on the cross. It's Jesus that leads us to the third observation that I would have us take from this account. And that is that Saul's hopelessness is our hopelessness, if not for Christ. Our passage ends, 1 Samuel 28, verse 25, says, She put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. They go out into the darkness, and they go out only to destruction. There is no hope in that going out. There are other figures in the New Testament who went out in the night in similar fashion. John 13.30 tells us that Judas, after receiving the morsel, immediately went out, and it was night. And our Lord entered the darkness as well. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we see there is our Lord hanging on a cross, brought outside the camp in judgment, in darkness, suffering the silence of the Lord to his cries. He went out into that night, into that darkness, so that you and I might never have to. He made a way for us to always have the ear of our Father. Jesus is the way to the Father, isn't he? John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Without him, there is no access. There is an uncrossable chasm to the Father. And without him, we are then doomed forever to exist in separation from him. Separation from his voice, separation from all of the blessings that come from his countenance. And when Jesus voluntarily took up a position of forsakenness on our account, he endured the Father's abandonment on behalf of all of his people, all of those who trust in him. And because of that, you have reason to eat the meal we're about to go out and enjoy this evening. Because of that, our lives are full of hope. My question to you is this. As you're walking through your ordeals and trials and struggles, frustrations, disappointments, are you bringing to them the hope that you have in the cross? 
Or in your mind, has the one who controls all things, has he abandoned you? Has he turned his ear from you so that he no longer hears your cries? We began tonight by asking the question, uh, what would it be like to be in Saul's position, to be in a position where we realized we had long ago placed ourselves beyond the hearing of his, of his ear, beyond the sound of his voice? And I say to you tonight on the authority of God's word that you will never know it. You'll never know it, believer in this room. There is no place you can go that the Lord will not be with you. There is no enemy in existence that can come between you and the rock of your salvation. And so there is always forever for you hope, if your hope is in Christ. And if you're here tonight and you know even if nobody else knows, if you know that you don't belong to him, you've not bent your knee to the Lord Jesus, you're not living for him. I have good news for you, and that is that you're not in that place yet either. You know how I know that? Because the Lord has brought you here tonight. You're hearing his voice now. He is answering your calls. Now. I mean, literally, now. But I hope we've seen in 1 Samuel 28 that his offer of himself to you comes with a warning. I don't know that it could be more clear in any other passage in Scripture. And that warning is do not despise the word of the Lord. When he speaks, we listen. And if you refuse to listen, there will come a time when he will cut you off from his word. He will remove it from you and you will be alone. You think you're alone now? He's brought you here. He's loving you actively. But if you scorn his word, the day will come when you will be alone. You will grope in the darkness for the rest of your life like a blind man with no one to guide him, and then you will die, and you will meet your judge. And when you do, nights like this one will be laid out in front of you in his courtroom, and you will have to see it and admit that you have no excuse. You stand rightly condemned. Because when you sought him, he brought himself to you. He brought his word of reconciliation near to you, and you would not receive it. Like Saul so many times with the prophet Samuel, sent as an act of love by God, ignored. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus walked into the path of that condemnation for every single person who will put their trust in him. There's one simple conclusion. There are many applications that we can think of as we, as we see Saul walk through this hopelessness and we compare it to where we are in Christ, the security, the rest, the joy. But I think we boil down to one very simple conclusion, and that is that if we have a word from God, we have hope. Not having a word from God is the essence of fear and misery and hopelessness. Apart from Christ... Just like Saul, we are answered only with silence. A silence most terrifying. I would have that scenario that we've reflected on a couple of times tonight turned on its head as we conclude. We could take that idea of being in the hour of our greatest need and finding ourselves outside of the helping hand, the kind voice of God. Let's turn that on the other side and end this way. Do you believe this tonight? There is, no, there is nothing so 
utterly comforting and inspiring of hope in finding that in our hour of greatest need, we know we were long ago placed securely in the loving arms of our Heavenly Father and that we will never be alone again. This is the hope that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we thank you for stories like this. It is hard to read something so dark and full of despair. But you tell us that you recorded stories like this for our instruction, that we would see what evil looks like, that we would see what rebellion looks like, and that we might not desire it. Father, we thank you for your son. The believers in this room hear of Saul in this place and shudder, and we thank you. We will spend eternity thanking you that we have never had to know what that felt like to come to our Heavenly Father and be answered only with silence. We thank you for your Son. We worship him tonight. And we pray in his name. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction tonight? Coming out of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen.